in the Old Testament, there was a, uh, an event where David, who was king of Israel, was going through a certain region, and as he was going through this particular region, he had his men, servants, go out in front of him, and he wanted them to talk to a man named Nabal. And as he went, basically what David was needing was basically some food, some just minor things to get his men through the journey. And basically he was asking for some hospitality. And as the men came to Nabal, I'm going to go ahead and read. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Who's, and, and, and excuse me, there be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread, my water, and, and my flesh, or my, my food, meat, that I have killed for my shearers, and give it unto the men, whom I know not whence they be? Well, David got the word back that Nabal mocked him. He got news back that sure enough, this guy was trouble. He said, okay boys, when you went to see him the first time, you didn't have your swords. This time, put on your swords. We're going into battle. And this guy is going to get wiped out. His whole family is going to get wiped out. And they're done. News came to Nabal's wife, and her name is Abigail. Abigail found out about what David was going to do. As a matter of fact, in the text, you'll see when she talks to David how reverent she was, and she knew that God's hand was upon him, and she knew not only her husband, but the whole family was going to be wiped out. It's interesting how she came to him. She came to him with all kinds of food and wine and sheep that were already dressed. She brought everything, even clusters of raisins, more than David would ever even have requested. Verse 19, And she said unto her servants, I'm reading this in 1 Samuel 25, just hang in there in Matthew. And she says to her servants, Go on before me, behold, I will come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal, and it was so as she rode upon an ass that she came down by the covert of the hill, and behold, David and his men came down against her, and she met them. The rest of the story goes this way, that she, Abigail, goes before David. She bows herself to the very ground, and in verse 24 it tells us that she fell at David's feet. You want to talk about some humility. And in this whole time period, she talks about her husband who, who is after the idols of Belial, and she's an unsaved man. But she knew David. And she knew that he was going to be one who would have God fight the battles for him. And that he, David, was the ruler of Israel. And so sure enough, she asked him to do one thing. Please remember your handmaid, that is Abigail. 
Well, the story goes on then that she goes back to her husband, Abel, and she says, by the way, I went and met David, and this is what exactly happened. And as she is telling him about this, I don't know if he had a heart attack or what, but it says he just fell over like a stone and laid there and eventually died. He was so afraid of what news was just given. And by the way, guess who Abigail marries then? Yeah. He's seeing these characteristics in, in her, David that is, and takes her to wife. You say, why would you go through all that? Isn't it interesting how she came to him? The humility and everything. But historically, what I am told is in Israel, in that region, horses weren't used all the time. There was something symbolic, if you will, coming in, instead of a horse, coming in on a donkey. You ever ridden one? David and I have. Haiti. Wasn't that when we went up the mountains on one of these things? They're kind of slow, kind of methodical. And that's where the symbolism of non-threatening, peaceful, in the approach. I mean, you're not going to get away from them. You know what I mean? Not on one of them. And we're going somewhere with all of this. The son of David. The Messiah. We have David in the Old Testament. Who such reverence as the king. Matter of fact, when you look at historically the word king. And how it all leads towards the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an absolute adventure to see from the old to the new. And that's what we're going to be doing today. Seeing Jesus Christ, the King. In Matthew 21, the text that we have had read today, and as Joe had mentioned in his prayer, uh, we're dealing with right before the crucifixion, the week of, if you will, the crucifixion and then the resurrection. What's really neat is to see in this week's time what Jesus Christ taught on. In other words, if you had one week to go and you knew it, what would you want to explain? What would you want to talk about? Jesus had a des the, the description of who He is, the future return of Christ, Matthew 24, we deal with eschatology. We deal with Him in the temple, in that region, teaching about Himself. Matter of fact, John really goes into a lot of descriptions of the great I Am, the light, etc. I'm the, the resurrection and the light. So He's talking about all of these things in this last week. And that's why such opposition is coming His way. As Jesus Christ shows Himself as the King here, <clears throat> some would say... If you were to not know Jesus, and you were to read this event, you would actually think he's a little conceited. If you are a non-believer and you see this man coming in, who is, you know, doesn't have a palace, has just a few followers, is just really coming on the scene for three years, and suddenly his disciples are the ones that begin this whole thing of, of, of worshiping Him. And that's what the word Hosanna is all about. It's all about worshiping. And so they're falling down before Him. 
And they begin to take leaves and place them down, their own clothing, and saying, we are unworthy, if you will, to be in your presence. You're the king. And all the guys, the Pharisees, you can almost see Stan and all the other Pharisees up here, you know, just with their arms crossing. What is going on here? Right away, they're hearing the, sing, the singing. They're even hearing children crying out, Thou Son of David! And you say, why are they using, and you'll see that in this text in verse number 9, as they are crying, the multitudes are saying, as they're crying out, Hosanna, and that means exclaimed adoration. And they are saying to him that he is the Son of David. You say, so what? Well, there's a big so what with that. This proclamation is saying that there was a promise in the Davidic line that was going to go right to the Messiah, and the multitudes are now swayed to believe He is the One. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time period, they knew a Messiah was coming, but could never imagine Jesus being the One. Where is the crown? Where is the palace? Where is the saving of the nation? David was about saving the nation, establishing a king whose rule was over all nations. He didn't lose. He was a man of war. If you're thinking of other kings like Solomon, total domination. And here's this guy coming in on a donkey and they're saying, he's the king? Give me a break. Who does he think he is? And Jesus never denied them. He never told them to stop. There were some things that prophetically needed to be fulfilled in this text to show to the nation of Israel, I am the one. As it was talked about in Zechariah 9 and verse number 9, here it is being fulfilled to the very detail. So here, here Jesus talks to his men. They're just a little journey out. You know, they're there a day before in preparation. And now, now's the time. He says, okay, boys, I want you to go in and you're going to find uh, a donkey and, and, his, and his coat. And you're going to go in and you're going to bring them. And if anybody says anything to you, which he knew they would, the owners of it, you read the other, the other Gospels, the actual owners come up and say, what are you doing with our animals? And all that you have to say is, the Lord has need of them. Oh, well, sure, go ahead. <laughs> And you look at that and you say, you know, somebody came up and took your car and you said, you know, the Lord has need of them. Oh, sure, take my car. I mean, this is their livelihood. You follow me? This is how they got around. This is what carried their, you know, this, their belongings, etc. And, and what God's showing you is He is Lord of all creation. And that's why He said, tell them, not Jesus, but say, the Lord has need of them. And God is in control. And that's what this text is all about. Pointing to one. The Messiah. And fulfilling it all. When we see kings throughout the scripture. Allow me to go down a little bit of uh, memory lane with us. And where kings came in. Now nations all around had kings. But Israel didn't. For much time in the Old Testament, no king. You go the whole way through the book of Judges, there's not one king. You have leaders, 
But you don't have, we have Moses, he wasn't a king. You have Josiah, he wasn't, uh, Joshua, he wasn't a king. He came up through, you know, Samson and, you know, all these others, Barak and, and Deborah. You know, we have all these individuals leading, but you don't have a king. And suddenly, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation of Israel looks around and, and sees, you know, uh, Eli, sees others, and they're looking at the descendants and the kids, and they're corrupt. And they're saying, you know what? We need a leader. We need a king. Now here's the deal. At that point, God never said, I want to establish a king. Nowhere in the law is it commanded, thou shalt have a king. But Israel wanted one because they wanted to be, as it tells us, just like all of the other nations. So they said, we want a king. Now, if Samuel was hearing this news, he is absolutely burdened in his heart. He knows this is wrong. So he goes and says, you don't want this. You don't want a king. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your boys, and they're going to become his, his warriors. He's going to be in control of your children and your family. He's going to take your daughters and they're going to become his servants. And he is going to be over top of you. You don't want this. And he said, yes, we do. And he said, fine. One of the interesting things that God comes to Samuel and says is this. Now follow me. They, Samuel, have not rejected you. What they have done is Israel has rejected me. It's as though God had been acting as their king all of this time, and they wouldn't recognize it. So God, sure enough, strategically says, okay, we'll give you Saul. And they're like, oh, look at this guy. So handsome, head and shoulders above the rest. He's just perfect guy. Well, he was a loser. He found that to be a real, real loser. And by the way, he did do all of those things that Samuel said. Going to tax you to death. He's going to take and use your kids. He's in control of you. You are not in control anymore. The self-government like you like to have under me is gone. And there's, there's a, a dictatorship now. A king is a dictatorship. You know, we have, as we set up in our government, totally different than that which is of a king. One who is a monarch, over top of, and this is the role. You come into my presence, I don't like you, you're dead. This is the kind of authority a king had. You know, you, you, you can't, you know the president wouldn't do that. You know, you come into his presence, if he doesn't like you, he's not going to be able to say, guys, kill him right now. That's just not the way we have our democracy. And that's not the way this role was. David said, boys, get your sword in, on and go fight. Yes, sir. We'll kill him. Do whatever said. These from the Old Testament were not of God. And so Saul was put to the side. And it is told us that God desired a king that was after his own heart. And that is a prophecy, not only about David, but who David typifies in the Old Testament towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That's hence the son of David. This is the one. And this one, the king of all of Israel, as he was used by God in a powerful way, he tells them that that kingdom, and I actually gave you the wrong reference, this is where this is at in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, that this man's kingdom, there will be no end. Now follow me. David died. 
So therefore, what are we dealing with? Some feel that David is going to come back alive and he's going to be the king again someday. I disagree. I see that these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and Him alone only. And as Jesus Christ, the King, <laughs> is prophesied about, as I mentioned, you know, Zechariah 9.9, you could see uh, Psalm 118, those who take notes, Psalm 118, 25 and 26. It's all about this one who is coming. Now, so sure enough, the King arrives. He does. He arrives to this earth. That's what Christmas is all about. Matter of fact, within that whole noise of the king's birth, there were prophecy that were given, and I'm over in Luke 1, if you want to follow along, you're welcome to. You say, this is Easter, we're going back to Christmas already? Yeah, we're going to do it just for a minute. And as Jesus, excuse me, as, as God is describing to Mary about her son who will be born, verse 32 of Luke 1, verse 32, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him, notice this, the throne of his father David. He shall reign over some, no, all of the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And you say, well, I, this doesn't make a lot of sense because I know this story. As Jesus comes into the triumphal entry, Israel is claiming him to be king. Uh, by the way, you know, about Friday comes along and they yell, crucify him, and he dies on the cross. How is it that his kingdom is forever? I'm glad you asked. Because three days later, he rose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascends into heaven and then fulfills all of the predictions, even in the book of Acts, that this must be fulfilled. And he is now, right now, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he is there interceding as our high priest. He is the one who is able to save us, redeem us unto himself. All of the fulfillment is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to the forever at the end of the service here. So this, this birth of Jesus Christ, uh, when He came, boy, it made no small stir. Matter of fact, back in the book of Matthew, and I'm reading out of chapter 2, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's a little baby. No threat. Babies are cute. It's just when they grow up, you know? <laughs> so, here's this little baby who's born in Bethlehem of Judea, verse 1. In the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. And listen to what, how they address the king. Saying, where is he that is born, not will be, but already is born, and he is already the king of the Jews. Who do you think the king of Israel was in the Old Testament? The true king before kings? Jesus Christ is the one who has always been sovereign and it is as though Israel has rejected Christ. 
And that's why in the New Testament, when he comes unto his own, and his own receives him not, dealing with the Jewish people, they missed him. They've been looking for the Messiah, but they missed him. Now listen, Jesus Christ, yeah, he's the king over Israel, but remember, he is sovereign over all nations, and over you and I. And because of this, what we have to do is not the same thing that Israel did, and miss him. You have this life to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God. He is the one over all. And you submit yourself and go underneath Him and say, He is my Lord. He is my God. He is my Creator. I am not in control. I am nothing as, as uh, wonderfully was explained yesterday at the men's breakfast, as Dennis brought up, the fact that you and I, we are nothing but a bunch of dirt. And we are ruffled together. And God has created in us life. And, and Ecclesiastes says that, from, uh, that God has created us and that that spirit within us will return back to Him who made us. What we have to acknowledge is Jesus is the one. And if you miss Him, you're in trouble. Israel missed Him. This entry brought a great threat to Herod. So much that a little baby in his life was sought after to kill him. Just because three guys who he didn't know came from a far country and said, where is the king of Israel? He's like, I don't know, but when you find him, let me know so I can worship him too. And he just wanted to murder him. And by the way, that's the Antichrist in his work against God's work. God wins. So as we see this entrance of the son of David, he is specifically of the tribe of Judah, fulfilling what was described in the Old Testament, that David's throne is an anointed throne that will be forever. And yet with this throne came sufferings. Usually the king, and as his approach comes in, you would think, as we see here, that everybody is adoring and worshiping Him. But that is not the case. It is not long until the book of Matthew begins to unveil the hostile attitude that the people had towards Jesus Christ. Look over at chapter 27 of Matthew now. Matthew 27. Jesus has, at this point, had the scene of the upper room, chapter 26. Judas has betrayed him. That's in chapter 27. And all the fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy came true. And we pick up now in verse 11. As Jesus Christ is brought before Pilate. Verse 11. Matthew 27, 11. Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? I want you to know that Jesus... Jesus' reply. Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Meaning, yep, it's the truth. What you have said is accurate. Jesus could never deny who he is. He will never deny himself. He would not even deny that he was the Son of God. And that was also part of the questioning. Are you the Son of God? Sometimes he would answer, 
usually with the Pharisees and the priests, etc., he wouldn't say anything. By the way, to fulfill prophecy again. And once he, did, he confessed, they said, what more do we need to hear? Crucify him. They crucified their own king. Over in this same chapter, verse 29, here he is before the soldiers, and you'll see that if you haven't been here for a play before, uh, Jesus, after the beating that he went through, and literally whipped, tied to a post and whipped, uh, they begin to mock him and they take him and put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns upon him. And they begin at that point to mock him. Here's your verse for that. Verse 27, I'm sorry, we're going to pick up. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the common hall, gathered him unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plated a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. This was the key point, isn't it? It's about who the people have said to this point and what Jesus is saying about himself. You're a king. You're not a king. Spitting in his face. Ripping out his beard. Placing this mock crown on his head. The, the thorns were a mockery of the kingdom. And the king behind that kingdom. This lost world was looking and spitting at the king of kings in his face, and saying, you don't, you're nothing, you're dirt. And even on the cross, they cried out, if you're the one, why don't you save yourself, and then we'll believe. All of this was a mockery. My friend, if you are here and you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are doing the same. By saying no to Him, and rejecting Him. Listen, the King has come. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sin, sinless life. 33 years went about, as the scripture says, doing good. He healed people. He resurrected dead people. I mean, he was constantly doing powerful miracles to show he is the Messiah. And what did they do? They killed him. But it was for you and I. He died on the cross for you and I. You say, why would He do this? Because He loves you and He loves me. Look over at John and his words about this whole principle of the King. Look at John chapter 18. Excuse me, chapter uh, 19, excuse me. Now remember, this whole scene with Pilate and the people and the, and the religious you know, lost Jews, this thing's gone back and forth for a while. And, and Pilate is almost trying to persuade them, don't kill them. 
Remember the, the scene where he says, fine, then, then you're the one guilty. I'm washing my hands with this guy. I don't think he ought to be killed, but you have a custom. You know, here's your custom. You know, we have this agreement between the Rome and, and the Jews, and we'll pick somebody, and, and uh, we'll let him go free. So Barabbas gets to go free, and then innocent man dies. You know, this is wrong, guys. But he allowed it to happen. But, but Pilate, prophetically, has something done that the Jews hated. And let's see it in verse 19. 1919. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, period. Well, this title then was read in many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, just in case you couldn't get one, you got the other. And now, verse 21, then the then said the chief priests of the, of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Let's just change it a little bit. You know, we don't care if you put it on there, but let's do it in a mocking way. This is what he said about himself. The guy that's dying here on the cross, he says he's the king of the Jews. This is a self-proclamation. We don't believe it. This is what he's saying about it. But note what Pilate says in verse 22. Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written, period. He didn't even realize that he was doing something as a witness to all of the Jews. Not that he says, but that he is the king of the Jews. This whole thing of the king, the sovereign one, the one that's in control, the one that says, let him be crucified, not be crucified. And all of this seemed to be a failure. The disciples scattering I mean, it seems like all hope is gone. And yet, this very one, Jesus Christ, dies and He rises from the dead. Look at Acts with me. We're doing good on time today so far. Whew. We're doing good. Look at Acts chapter number 2. This kind of just pulls it to me all together. You don't mind reading a little bit. We're going to start in chapter 2 and verse number 19. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. Now keep that in mind. He's giving a prophecy about Jesus Christ and about the Spirit of God coming down. It was all prophesied about. Now he's going to read... Return the attention back to Christ. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you men of Israel, so he's talking to the Jews, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Does that sound familiar? A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. In other words, nobody can deny what he did which God did by him in the midst of you all, your witnesses also know. Him, verse 23, being delivered by the determinate counsel of the foreknowledge of God. Wait a minute, I thought the Jews killed him. Yeah, this is God's plan. You, you can't get ahead of God. He had this whole thing planned out ahead of time. And yet you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and you have slain him. But, 
Verse 24, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Now let's get verse, verse 25. For David, isn't that ironic? That David comes into this whole picture of the death and the resurrection. That David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Hope is the, is the resurrection, folks. Verse 27, here's the prophecy of David in the Psalms. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave or in hell, neither wilt thou allow or suffer thine holy one, holy one is Jesus, to see corruption. Thou hast made him known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. The resurrection, folks, brings joy. Because it fulfills the ultimate hope. Listen, folks, I know some of you are hurting physically. I got good news for you. There's going to be a day you don't have pain anymore. But it isn't here. Until we die, we are going to be in pain. You say, I thought Christians had these healing lines and everybody got healed. Yeah, there's times that we get healed. And there's times the Lord steps in and gets us, gets us a little more time. But guess what? Outside of the rapture, I'm going to die. You say you're the preacher. Yeah, I know. But I'm going to die. Because i got this sinful nature inside of me also. And I am corrupting. As I speak, I'm deteriorating. You know? Going downhill. Getting bald. Eyesight is leaving. My knees are hurting. My back is hurting. All of these things. Isn't it depressing? Not really. Because this means I'm just one day closer to heaven. Don't cry for me either. When I die, I hope you have a celebration. Not because I'm gone, you know. <laughs> because, of, but because I'm in heaven, okay? We're at uh, Carlos Treadway's uh, viewing. And while we were there, every once in a while, they would get around the piano and they would all start singing hymns about heaven. And that's what the Christian going to heaven is, is about. It's a celebration. You say, this is like really weird for me. Because death is supposed to be everybody crying and depressed and holding on to the casket. It's like, oh no, they're gone. I'll never see them again. No, that's not the Christian. The Christian is, I'll, just see, I'll be seeing you later. Because as a Christian, we're going to be in heaven one day. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's how I know. That's next week, though. <laughs> so, uh, I think we're in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his scepter is with us unto this day. So we can go to the graveside. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, now notice this, for this purpose, to sit on his throne. So David even knew there is one coming that is going to ultimately be on the throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, there's no ascension unless there's a resurrection. That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up 
Wherefore we are all witnesses. This room is filled to this day with witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. You say, I haven't seen him. No, but he, he is, as the song says, I know he lives. You know why? He lives within my heart. Therefore, verse 33, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see. For David is not ascended into heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. Now notice this next phrase, Until I make thy foes thy footstool. You say, what does that mean? Well, remember how Abigail fell at the feet of David, King David? Guess what we all get the privilege of doing? Jesus Christ, the King. We all have the same opportunity to go to the very footstool, the very feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship Him, Hosanna, cry out as He is on His throne, not with a a crown of thorns, but with deity's crown, there interceding for us, praying for us, ministering to us, and we finally get the chance to worship Him as He truly deserves it. We're almost done. Look with me to the Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 10. Now, as we read this verse, we're just going to zero in on it. There are individuals called 24 elders. The 4 and 20 elders, 24 elders. Most theologians and myself, who is not a theologian, believe that these 24 elders are those that represent you and I, the church. Okay? Uh, In many hymns, I think it was even mentioned in one of our hymns today, about how we are going to cast our crowns at Jesus' feet. Here's your text for that. The four and twenty elders... Fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before, notice this, the throne. The throne is where the king sits. So we are there crying out and worshiping God and we take those crowns. By the way, we get those crowns given to us by Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. So, listen, as you work for Christ here, when we finally get into heaven, we're going to get crowns given to us, and then we're going to take those crowns, and we're going to come before the very throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, bow down before Him, worship Him, and then cast all of our crowns. I wonder how that's going to be done. I don't know if it's one by one. You say, boy, that's going to take a long time for all the Christians. That's okay. A day in heaven is just like a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Time is irrelevant in heaven. I'd like to think it's going to be personal. To look at the Savior eyeball to eyeball and say, Lord, thank you. And here, my reward goes back to you, Lord, because without you, I could do nothing. And that's why we cast them back at his feet. I think the position will still be there, though. Look at Revelation 19. This is a powerful text, folks. 
And we could have spent the whole day on this one alone. But let me explain to you what's going on. Rapture takes place, we're snatched away, we're judged, we cast our crowns at his feet, marriage feet, all those things. And then, at the end of the seven years of tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And as he comes back that time, now remember, he's going to come back in the air for you and I. He's not coming back to the earth to abide. He's coming back in the air, snatching us away. Chapter 19 is where we get into him coming back here. In this text, we're going to pick up, oh man, there's so many places. Um, let's pick up in verse number 10 of Revelation 19. And I fell at his feet, worshipped him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, because this is an angel. I'm thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus and the spirit of prophecy. For, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey. You follow me on this? Not a donkey, folks. White horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and righteous. And he doth judge and make war. The next time he comes back, folks, he can come back peaceful. He's coming back to create a war. You say, who's the bad guy? All the lost and Satan, the Antichrist and all that. The false prophet. So he's coming back and making war. His eyes, verse 12, were a flame of fire. And on his head were many what? Crowned him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Remember that? And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Why? It's deity. And he was clothed upon with a vesture. Now notice this. Dipped in blood. And that time, it's not his own. It's the blood of Armageddon. And his name is called the Word of God. John 1, 1 through 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's us. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, out of his mouth go they sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. You say, what's going on here? Well, Psalm 2 and many other prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are upon the earth need to fall down before Him and believe in Him and worship Him or else they are in big trouble. This war of Armageddon is going to be a vicious war that God wins, of course. And many people are going to die. And it is because they will not believe Jesus Christ. They will not believe the witness of the two witnesses, the 144,000 Jewish men. The list goes on with the witnesses that are going on here. So Christ comes back to wipe away, takes away the unsaved, the unrighteous, they are the goats, to establish His own sheep. And He is then establishing His kingdom in righteousness and in truth. And by the way, this is not symbolic. This will happen. Now notice verse 16. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh, that strong muscle, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It closes down, folks, with Jesus the King. You say, is this an important subject? We have scratched the surface this morning 
of how important the king. Remember, if there's a king, that means there is a what? Kingdom. And that's what we're discovering and understanding through the scriptures about all of this. Say, so how does this apply to me? Well, we've got a king. And the first time this king came to earth, born, took on, like you and I, this old flesh, they took him and murdered God because he was the son of man. That's okay because God had it all planned out because he's going to die. His blood was going to be shed for our sin. And three days later, God's going to raise him from the dead. And then he's going to resurrect, excuse me, ascend up into heaven. And he is there right now on the throne forever. He will never be dethroned. Eternity. And so now, here you and I are, we're learning this maybe for the first time, and what we do is we stop and we say, wow, he's really important, isn't he? Mm-hmm. A king isn't a president. You can't sit down and debate with the king and say, you know, come on. Cut me a little break here. No, he's the king. What he says is law. And it is accurate. It is truth. And he knows us. And he knows whether you personally have received Jesus Christ as your Savior or not. And if you haven't, you say, I will never bow my knee to anybody because I am important. I'm above ever bowing the knee. Now, God tells us that every knee is going to bow to the king. Whether you want to or not, you will bow the knee. Is that you need to bow the knee now. And you stop and you say, Lord, I can't save myself. You're the one that died. You rose again. You did that for me. I invite you into my heart. You humbly bow before him. And you believe in him. And then he's going to exalt you. Humility comes first. That's next two weeks message for now. For the Christian, this gives, this gives us the perspective of who is running the show. And that, yes, we will bow the knee one day. And that bowing of the, the knee is to give the Lord Jesus Christ our own rewards that He has given us. Are we looking forward to that day? It should be a day that as a Christian, we can't wait for that moment. It is as though we're living right now towards that goal of standing before Lord Jesus Christ. And as John tells us, we don't want to be ashamed at His coming. We want to be ready, looking forward to that day. And that's what the New Testament is about. The resurrection. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have proven over and over again that You are the King of Kings.